This is the EY Podcast, Tax and Law in Focus, bringing you ideas for leadership from one of the world's top C-suite advisors. I'm your host, Susanna Streeter. The tax landscape before us is one of shifting sands and swirling tides. The deal calling for a global minimum tax that was agreed by the G7 and G20 groups of nations grabbed the headlines, with the UK's Financial Times calling it the starting point on the road to global reform. The agreement to implement a truly multinational plan to tax in market, though, was also criticised for having loopholes and for setting the bar too low. The fact that newspapers devoted so many column inches to that deal is significant and, arguably, this interest demonstrates the increasing economic and social pressure placed on administrations to ensure companies pay their fair share in tax. It comes at a time when governments are trying to work out how to address public finance deficits created by the emergency spending brought on by the pandemic. They're likely to turn even more of their focus to tax collection. And with this comes the increasing potential for tax enforcement and controversy. Just over half of all businesses questioned in a recent EY survey said they expect greater enforcement over the next three years. In this podcast, we'll also discuss how technology is both shaping the debate, but also providing private sector companies with better ways to manage things in this fast-evolving landscape. Just what should organisations do to future-proof their tax operations and help ensure compliance in a world of increasing complexity and controversy? And I'm really pleased to say we have three eminent thought leaders in this field to guide us through all of these topics. But first, please remember, conversations during this podcast should not be relied upon as accounting, tax, legal investment or any other professional advice. Listeners must, of course, consult their own advisors. We will be discussing and probing a whole range of issues. So first, I'm very pleased to be joined by Marlies de Ruter, who's talking to us from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Hi, Marlies. It's great to meet you and to find out more about your view as EY's Global International Tax and Transaction Services Policy Leader. Hello, Susanna. Very, very happy to be here. Also joining us from Birmingham in the UK, I'd like to introduce EY partner Paul Dennis from the Tax Controversy and Risk Management Division. Hi there, Paul. Hi, Susanna. Great to join you today. And finally, we're going to get the tax lowdown from EY Tax Controversy leader Luis Coronado, who's in Singapore. Hi there, Luis. Hi, Susanna from uh, sunny Singapore. Looking forward to our discussion. So let's start looking at the impact of the pandemic. Tell me, Luis, aren't we facing a perfect storm at the moment, do you think? Are we seeing a double whammy of high levels of country indebtedness due to the COVID crisis and high pressure on business to bounce back and deliver long-term sustainable growth? Well, definitely, we are seeing that the governments are doing all that they can to keep the economic activity afloat, right? There's been stimulus, there's been support provided in various uh, locations throughout the world, and governments eventually need to make up for that spend. And whether they're going to do it in the way of uh, squaring up their budgets or whether they're going to be replenishing the reserves that they might have spent, they do need to increase their collection. That's going to come in various ways, either applying the current legislation and perhaps having new interpretations 
conditions of it, but also in the creation of uh, new uh, taxable events that that could increase uh, their, their their collection. Right. So we do expect to see a lot of activity both in the legislative side, but also in the activity of the government. And taxpayers should should start to get ready for that. They uh, should be expecting that this is going to come, and and this is the right time just before the storm starts to start seeing how they're going to uh, prepare themselves and have all the tools necessary for it. Okay, Louise, thank you very much. Well, let me bring in Paul. Paul, what do you think the main risks in this evolving global tax environment are? And what kinds of companies do you think need to be particularly vigilant? Yeah, and it was informative towards the end of last year, EY conducted the Tax Risk and Controversy Survey, where we had respondents from almost 1,300 large businesses. The number one risk for them was seen to be transfer pricing and, and by some distance with withholding taxes at number two and digital services taxes at number three. So for large multinationals and particularly those in the in the technology sector, uh, some significant risk for them to be addressing at the moment. Okay, Malise, we're already seeing increased demand for transparency and country by country reporting, even before the pandemic. So how should organisations deal with this increasing complexity that they're facing? Yeah, indeed, uh, Susanna. Transparency for a while now has been very high on the agenda of governments, which is illustrated by a growing level of reporting to these governments. Think about country by country reporting, but also, for example, mandatory disclosure rules. And if we look at the current situation, what we see is that there's a new trend. What we see now is that tax is included in the ESG non-financial reporting standards. As a second trend, what we are seeing is that uh, regulators are moving towards mandatory public tax reporting. So this brings very important challenges for businesses. First, to ensure that they, they get to co- coherent and consistent reporting, which is not easy because all these different standards, and uh, they ask for different things. So businesses need to make sure they align and, and bring kind of coherent messages to the governments and to the public. And then the second is embedding this reporting, this tax reporting, the mandatory reporting into a wider uh, reporting strategy of the company. And that could be a wider tax reporting strategy, looking at what do I want to tell the different stakeholders that I'm talking to, but also uh, alignment with, for example, the the wider ESG reporting strategies that, that businesses may have. So indeed, a lot happening in this area at this moment. And what about data in particular, Malise? Yeah, that, that's important, right? To get to coherent reporting, you need to make sure that you have high quality and um, unambiguous data at the foundation of all the reporting that you're doing. That's the only way in which you can secure that the, the, there is unambiguous reporting, consistent reporting to all the stakeholders. So data quality is key to all of this. Yeah, it's really interesting, Marlies. And let me bring in Louise. Do you agree with what Marlies is saying? Do you consider also that providing data that's as reliable as possible is increasingly important right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, first of all, we are living in a world that is no longer based on uh, trying to resolve audits from a starting position of uh, information asymmetry or documentation asymmetry. I think more and more governments are sharing information through formal programs or informal programs. And even the uh, ability that uh, the OECD has had to bring together countries, right? The uh, inclusive framework has more than 130 countries. There are a lot of informal discussions happening between the governments. So taxpayers shouldn't be surprised that, that the 
authorities uh, have started this multilateralism phase uh, and that uh, a lot of their information uh, is being shared, like it, like it or not. I think that it's not uh, uncommon that uh, a lot of uh, positions that are being negotiated and agreed then potentially could become case studies for uh, governments to uh, discuss in the water cooler or during their lunch breaks at their international meetings or even during their breaks now that they're having Zoom uh, discussions. So definitely uh, an area that is uh, very important and that uh, taxpayers need to do more to internally control what is being put together and presented to governments and how they can actually build up their own files for submission, that they can actually control what is the data access that they have in a way that uh, they will know what is uh, available out there to the governments. And don't be surprised when a case is being built up just because information was shared. Mm, it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to those water cooler moments once more. Let me bring in Marlies. I'm, I'm sure you are as well. Let's talk about advanced pricing though now, because I just want to find out what kind of situations is it advisable for companies to apply for advanced pricing agreements? These allow businesses to explain proposed arrangements to tax authorities in advance. So, so what are the benefits of this approach? Just going back to what Lewis just uh, said, I think that the easy answer is that it provides a possibility to cope with the uncertain and multilateral environment that Lewis just referred to um, and all the risks that comes with that environment. In, in a multilateral environment, you need multilateral solutions and advanced pricing agreements at this time is one of the few opportunities to have that dialogue in advance instead of only when you have had the controversy at the end of the process when you would go to a multilateral agreement procedure to to resolve the issue between governments so it's it's a, it's a very um, strategic way to search for a holistic approach worldwide of your tax issues and if you have tax authorities agreeing to it then you will see that the others are, will also follow and it's also a way to mitigate risks because kind of the, the, these different positions by different authorities, they create kind of uncertain tax positions that you need to report them. They have financial consequences. Uh, so, so for some companies, this has actually meant that they have been able to seriously mitigate their uncertain tax positions, which also save the money. So several reasons to look for APA going forward. Yes. And I'd like to pick up on that point. You're stressing um, the benefits of this dialogue in advance. Paul, let me bring you in here. Just how important do you think it is to establish a regular dialogue with tax authorities? Do you think discussing complex transactions and developing the relationship over time will lead to less likelihood of future tax investigations? I think it's it's worth making the point initially that the, the approach of tax authorities can, can vary quite considerably around the world. So it's, it's important to start by understanding the best strategy in, in each country in which you operate. But unquestionably, where it is possible to have a a more proactive, real-time engagement with the revenue authority. This can undoubtedly reduce the likelihood of audits. So, Luis, are you seeing this playing out, the need for approaches to be specifically tailored in in respect to different regions? Yes, Susanna, definitely. Uh, this is something that we see playing. Taxpayers are moving more from resolution and trying to be more proactive. They're looking at insurance programs. They're looking at uh, certainty programs and just getting uh, governments to have a position agreed with them up front rather than carry that uncertainty, right? In certain parts of the world, depending on whose authorities are you getting the approval from or the uh, 
agreement with, that might carry some weight as well, uh, given uh, what we discussed as earlier around the, the cooperation and the uh, sharing of, of information. So APAs are, are uh, one of the important uh, aspects. Uh, uh, the other one is the International Compliance Assurance Program, or ICAP, that although it's a recent program from the OECD, taxpayers are looking at it in order to have more certainty. And I think eventually as well, as we move into uh, the BEPS 2.0 initiative, there are some uh, self-provided uh, areas for dispute resolution that, that bring nuances that taxpayers should be looking into when they're looking at uh, resolving their, their tax issues up front. It is a much more different environment trying to resolve with the authority in an open uh, field, in an open conversation, rather than when you're going in for a resolution, even MAP, you're playing catch up uh, with what is already a position taken by the authority. And do you think, Luis, you're seeing more C-suite executives becoming more involved in managing their organization's tax profile? Has this developed over the past few years? Yeah, definitely. I think the C-suite uh, is concerned not only with the potential financial risk that is not being disclosed. And so looking at provisions in, in, in locations where there are uncertainties or even controversies already started, but also other aspects such as criminal penalties that could be out there if they don't feel that they have been spending enough time uh, looking after their tax affairs. The other point here is reputational. And I think that the last thing companies would want is that given now the fact that you hear and read about tax in any uh, newspaper, it's no longer just the financial newspapers or even the technical tax newspapers, it's, it's, a, it's a layman's uh, uh, issue now, then you get to see that the last thing you want to do is to have a boycott on your products because there is a... Uh, an issue of, of reputation. So I think definitely boards are looking at those three points, financial, reputation, and even uh, potential criminal uh, pen penalties that might come in on top of, of financial penalties. Well, let me bring in Paul on that point about reputation. How serious an issue do you see reputational risk for companies? Do you think it's increasing given that the media and public opinion now have this kind of razor sharp focus on this subject? Yeah, un undoubtedly that, that risk is growing and, and Luis touches on a few points there, including the fact that we just see tax mentioned on the on the front of the newspapers far more than, than we probably ever did in the past as well. So you mentioned it at the outset to uh, Susanna, this focus on really trying to determine what is the, the fair amount of tax to be paid, not just the, the right amount of tax to be paid. And, and once again, we've talked a little bit about the C-suite interest here as well. And this was reflected in our in our survey where 66% of respondents said that their C-suite are also showing more interest in tax matters as a result. Uh, Louise, do you think we're seeing a trend for tax authorities to even name and shame non-compliant businesses? Is, is, do you think this is focusing minds as well? I think uh, we're progressively getting there in certain locations. I think in northern countries, you see the publishing of names of non-compliant taxpayers. As I mentioned, I think it's also a question of access to information and so on, right? I think the media has started to recognize that tax is becoming a, an area of interest uh, for the political motivation that it has for, at the moment in COVID, the stimulus that the, the government, uh, what are they going to be spending on creating jobs, preserving jobs, etc. So I think it's just natural that the media uh, is going to be uh, requesting as well that information. And now all of this shows, doesn't it, Paul, that, that we have a rapidly evolving global tax environment. 
Do you think companies really do have wide visibility and all the potholes they might face in the road? Yeah, and from, from many conversations with multinationals on this, uh, the response is to, to a point. So the feedback tends to be that they feel that they have a good handle on emerging tax risks where they, where they have a large presence and a, and a dedicated tax team in a territory. But as they get to those territories where they maybe have a smaller presence and don't have dedicated tax personnel, it can be really very much harder to keep a handle on all of the emerging risks. And as you mentioned, with that rapidly evolving global tax environment, that that challenge is only growing. Mullies, let me bring you in here. Do you think, given the whole range of risks we are now looking at, that it's really concentrating the minds of boards right now? Yes, that, that is clearly the case. If you look at the current situation, the times are gone where tax was at the end of the board's agenda right before any other business uh, and then dedicated five minutes. Uh, because what you do see is that in the current environment, there are significant and relevant risks uh, to manage. Think, for example, about regulatory risks. Uh, There are huge changes ongoing in the the current environment. Uh, You already mentioned BEPS 2.0, the global kind of reset of of the international tax rules, but also the the, the pandemic and the spending is bringing plans to governments on um, additional taxes. So definitely high on the agenda, regulatory risk, but also reputational and controversy risk, which uh, Lewis already discussed, which also, of course, links to the whole transparency and reporting area. And then we have the compliance and operational risk. Because, of course, as a board, you need to be in control. You need to make sure that each and every entity in your operations complies with their tax obligations and and has the same tone to, to, for example, tax authorities. So quite a few risks to manage. And what we do see is that in current times, boards are on top of that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how all of this have, is evolving. And Paul, you talked about how companies need to demonstrate what they're doing. They may be ticking all the right boxes, but do you think they need to be more proactive in actually showing, shouting out loud, in effect, what they're doing to contribute to tax and the wider society? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mentioned earlier about being proactive on on revenue authority engagement, and, and I'd say the same here as to, uh, too with with the interest from from many stakeholders in the tax contribution of businesses. It's really important to consider how your tax contribution aligns with the organisation's stated purpose, and indeed any statements about the contribution that it makes to the societies in which that business operates. And, and in doing so, then build a strategy around tax transparency that aligns with that approach too. Now, this whole topic really does feed into how tax is being fed into new regulatory standards. Molly's as part of the ESG reporting strategy, how do you see all of this evolving? What, what we are seeing at this moment is that indeed tax is more and more included as one of the elements of ESG reporting. Uh, there are a number of voluntary standards in this area where tax is mentioned. Uh, think, for example, at Uh, about the GRI, where one of the biggest voluntary standards around that just added kind of tax uh, in, I think, 2019 to their standards. Um, And and what you see, that that creates a new dynamic because that creates the dynamic for businesses to align um, their tax reporting strategies with their wider ESG reporting strategies. And, of course, the current time, sustainability and environment is key and, and, and 
often drives the purpose of businesses. So you want that to be aligned. And then that also, again, brings back that point that we already made before about consistency in the, the reporting, both the touch and the feel as the actual message. Uh, you want to make sure that you give a coherent message to your stakeholders. So definitely this is going to be something that be, will be relevant for the coming period. And what we are also expecting is that when you look at non-financial reporting standards, there are many out there and it's very fragmented. So what you do see now is that there's the, this drive for more mandatory and more uniform standards and tax will also be part of that. So there's still quite a bit to happen in that area. Mm. Let me bring in Luis uh, right now, because in this environment, companies are facing an increasing number of e-audits. What are the implications, do you think, for scrutiny to be multi-sided and group-wide in this respect? And which regions do you think this is becoming much more of a regular occurrence? Well, first of all, I think this goes back to the point that Marlies and I tried to make earlier about the information and the quality of the information. You will no longer even have an ability to influence that information or make changes to that information because it's going to be reported directly by the government. And then they will extract what they need, make their calculations. And in many situations, you will have an immediate tax receipt to pay, right? We do see that more and more in the indirect tax front where transactions are being uh, immediately uh, having the, the tax consequences that apply to them, perhaps for corporate tax and so on, is still on a monthly basis, etc. But we see that more and more. And I believe that there's a leap front jump that you would see from locations that perhaps would have not been identified as, as leading in, in the area of IT, but particularly Russia, Brazil, Mexico, you would see them at the forefront of the uh, basic uh, changes in the tax administration to become much more electronic, to become more ready with systems and so on. And and they're at the front turn of it. I think that managed uh, to, to cut red tape, that managed to make them a lot more efficient and to manage their finances in a, in a more real-time basis. So uh, definitely you will see more and more of that. We, we do know that a number of governments want to introduce more and more a transformation to make their tax function a lot more efficient. And that's through the implementation of IT systems and um, having a, a longer buck for their for their money on investment, not only on human resources, but also on technology that can help them to collect and audit in a, in a more um, immediate way and, and in a more efficient way. Yeah, you're talking about advances in technology. Paul, let me bring in you on this, because what do you think the impact is on tax teams of advanced and predictive analytics, which are highly forensic reviews? What what implications do you think they have? Yeah, I think as a result of this technology, what we're already seeing is that the, the level of review in audits is, is just so much broader uh, with, with data analytics tools enabling revenue authorities to review really significant tranches of data. A, a real move away from providing paper documentation and analyses to simply providing huge uh, rafts of data. And that's not just numerical data, I should add as well. For example, we see requests for, for email communications to enable the data analytics tools to be able to review and find individual emails. And as a result of all of that, what we therefore see is, is much more onerous audits with huge amounts of data being provided uh, and following from that less certain outcomes. Just want to remind you, you are listening to the EY podcast 
Tax and Law in Focus with me, Susanna Streeter, and our panel of thought leaders in the tax world. We have Marlies Deruta, Paul Dennis, and Luis Coronado. So we scanned the horizon and spotted the landmarks which made this issue such a hot topic. So how should we deal with the risks? Marlies, let me ask you, do you think this is an ideal time for companies to get their house in order? Or do they simply not have any other choice? Yes, uh, I think it is an ideal time, but there will also be a time where they will not have any other choice and, and that is, is coming soon. But in the current time, what, what you see is that clearly we're living in transformative times. There's so much going on, digitalization, environment, etc. And, and what you do see is that is creating a, a dynamic in society. Um, and of course, businesses are part of that uh, society. They are answering to demands from the public on, on their behavior, and they are looking for their purpose. So in that context, if you look at that broader perspective, of course, tax is an element of that and, and should be taken into account. And, and then in order also to, to cope with the current transformative times, including kind of the environmental elements of it, where tax also plays a relevant role, uh, you also want to be in control, right? You want to be in control of what's happening in your business. So that also is a reason to put your, your issue in order to create kind of your tax control frameworks, to look at your risk management uh, processes. And, and then the final question is, of course, what are you controlling? What's your strategy? How do you set your tax strategy? Uh, what are your values? Which things don't you allow your entities to do? So indeed, an ideal time to make sure that your tax approach is fully aligned with your commercial approach and with the purpose you're driving at. Mm. And Paul, there was an expectation of a bit of a lag before tax authorities return to a full pre-COVID-19 audit environment. Do you think this still provides businesses with a bit of breathing space, with a significant opportunity to prepare and to get ahead of the game? So my advice here would be not to rely upon any lags in revenue authority activities to delay in building your strategy. In truth, revenue authorities responded as quickly, quickly as businesses did to, to the COVID-19 challenges. And, and those delays are not really being seen any longer. So what should companies do, Lewis? Is one route developing perhaps less centralised business models to help reduce complexity? And in what ways could this bring benefits? I think this is going to be driven by business as, as always, and tax will follow. But I do see that many more companies are breaking from the centralised model that they used to have and trying to be closer where their markets are. And I think you're starting to see uh, less than uh, high, high dependency, for instance, in manufacturing in certain parts of Asia and trying to bring it back to certain components of Europe and the Americas and so on. So by doing that, I think you will also have a multi-hub model, right, where we you, you no longer will have just a central entrepreneur globally, but you'll be able to share things that are associated with high value, the entrepreneurial activity and functions that are located in multiple countries. And that's how you're going to be splitting uh, the benefits that come out of that. That might make the transfer pricing a bit more complex, but it will certainly uh, reduce, uh, hopefully, areas of controversy because you'll be able to have smaller circles uh, than to have just a centralized model. So I do think that uh, taxpayers will probably break it up in uh, in, in, in circles or in, in, in uh, 
various parts of, of the world activities in, in, in this way. And Marlies, what do you think is happening in terms of policy developments which might have an impact here? Yeah, what you see is that the, the policy developments um, are going into the, the same direction. So if you look, for example, at the worldwide tax reform or BEPS 2.0, what you do see is that there's this, this minimum tax requirement. So if you have activities in, in a country, you should pay a minimum amount of tax. Uh, and, but besides that, also, there, there's this trend to allocating more profits to the market, as Lewis already also referred to. And, and that is, of course, emphasized also by the transparency notion that kind of you want to show that everyone is getting their fair share of tax where you have your activities. And then the final thing that we also shouldn't forget, that if, if you look at the whole environmental area, th th there will be taxation, but there will also be carbon border adjustment mechanisms. So in, in, the, in that sort of an environment where local norms and local taxes will be applied, but also if you trade into those unions, you will have to pay taxes. What you will see is that some of the supply chains will become more local. So indeed, the trends are, are strengthened by the policy environment. So Luis, let me bring you back in again. Do you think too many organisations wait until a tax controversy occurs before taking action and so miss out on early opportunities to deal with tax risks in the first place? And if they are doing that, how can they change and become much more proactive rather than reactive? Yeah, thanks, Susanna. I think, uh, yeah, it's a clear reflection of what we had seen historically, many taxpayers waiting for resolution, as pointed out earlier. But we do, we do see that things can, can be changing and they could start looking at this more proactively, right? There is a life cycle of controversy that you could practically break up and start to have a different perspective on it. The, the normal components that we see our taxpayers break it up into is tax risk assessment, where they fail uh, we'll have a look at what are their positions throughout the world, what the potential exposures are, etc. What are some of the legislative changes that might need to be taken into account and uh, and try to act on them. Then by acting on them, you have uh, another phase of, of tax risk management and try to look into uh, cooperative uh, compliance programs, try to look at ICAP, as mentioned before, APAs and so on, right? And, and lastly, you will have situations where you will have audits, but you can manage them much better if you proactively would be creating positions within the group. If you have a setup that is similar in various locations for your distribution, for your services, for your manufacturing, you could probably then have uh, ways to defend those positions in an organized fashion, in a consistent fashion, and take into account what we've said as well in the earlier part of the postcard regarding the sharing of information of the government. So that consistency will probably only play to your favor. And all of that has to be supported by tools and technology. And uh, that's going to create the ability to have the reports that are going to be created from the systems, the ability to have a dashboard that gives you a visibility of what you have globally, etc. So I think that definitely there is an opportunity here to start moving more proactively and, and really, uh, to a degree, making the controversy function within the uh, uh, company a lot more specialized because that's that's the demand that we're seeing given the activity from the from the government. So, Paul, given the changes that Luis is proposing, do you think this means root and branch reform of tax controversy departments or tinkering around the edges of current ways of working? I think my experience is that, is that businesses can be at either end of the spectrum and indeed anywhere in between as well. 
that there are still very many businesses that when it comes to controversy, respond in an ad hoc and very reactive way as it arises. But my advice here is is to be more strategic, to to take a step back and, and consider many of the emerging trends that we've been talking about today, consider some of the leading practices that are evolving in the management of controversy and, and really form a view on where you are at, at the moment and where you would like to be to, to identify that gap analysis and, and determine really how much reform and change you might be looking at in the tax function. Okay, Paul, well, thank you uh, very much. And before we go, I do want to ask all of you to list one key takeaway to help tax teams and to help them really manage tax controversy. What one action should they start thinking about right now? So, Paul, what is your number one suggestion? Yes, I've mentioned a number of times now that the theme of being proactive here. And, And whilst every business's response to these challenges will vary depending on their own circumstances, my number one suggestion is, is to formulate that strategy now and secure the C-suite's backing to your approach so that you can understand what the future looks like in your tax controversy department. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. So, Luis, let me bring you in here. What's the one action that you would propose? Well, I think it, it comes down to being proactive. And I think that taxpayers could start looking into these uh, compliance programs, these assurance programs, and not wait just for resolution. Inevitably, is will it will become a resolution discussion if there is an audit. You can't prevent yourself from having one in most locations. But if you have a proactive approach to it, ICAP, APAs, and any other assurance programs that are out there for different taxes, uh, then taxpayers will probably have more control of where they might end up in situations where they have a review from the government. And Marlies, tell me what's the top of your list. For me, I think the most important would be that you have a a future-looking perspective because we know that there's a lot kind of of new development coming uh, and and this is probably also a very difficult task, but, but retaining the oversight of what's coming is going to be key to be in control in the future. Okay, well, thank you so much to all three of you, Marlies, Lewis and Paul. It's been really great to gather all of your really valuable insights into these shifts in the tax risk and controversy environment. For more information, you can visit ey.com. And a quick note from the legal team, the views of third parties set out in this podcast aren't necessarily the views of the global EY organisation, nor its member firms. Moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time in which they were made. I'm Susanna Streeter. I hope you join me again on the next edition of Tax and Law in Focus, brought to you by EY.